Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're going to find ourselves, and we've been a couple weeks not in Hebrews because of the Christmas season that we've been in, and then last week with the State of the Church Address. So as you guys head to the 10th chapter of Hebrews, let me just remind you where we've come thus far. By now, you all remember that the theme of the book is Jesus is better. That's what we see over and over coming up as we've journeyed through the book of Hebrews. Now, what is he better than? Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1, the writer makes it clear he is better than prophets, the very uh, mouthpiece of God. They gave word from God to the people. Uh, Jesus is better than that. He has supremacy over the prophets. He is also better than angels. Chapters 1 and 2 covered that. The very messengers of God, what uh, the writers communicating is Jesus is a better messenger than even those. Uh, Chapters 3 and 4 and even trickling into chapters 5 and 6, we see Jesus portrayed as better than Moses, Joshua, Abraham. And so over and over again, he's trying to communicate and make it clear that Jesus is better. And finally, he gets to something they valued so very much, that being their priesthood. Chapters 5 through 7. And and what he communicates there to them is Jesus is of an even better lineage, a better priesthood than that of the Levites. He is from the order of Melchizedek. He has supremacy in this way. And then finally we get to chapters 8 and 9 as we look at Jesus being better than all this creation. And we see that he is even better than uh, the tabernacle. Which seems odd. Like why would the writer say he is better than a building or a structure. But what we talked about as we covered those sections is the tabernacle was a place where God and man could actually be reunited, relinked. And that's what the word religion really means. It's it's our desire to relink with God. Now we come up with all sorts of ways we can relink that don't really work, but the ultimate idea behind religion is to relink with God. So through the tabernacle, he gives a place where God can actually dwell with man and be there with them in the midst of their camp. Now when you go all the way through the Old Testament and arrive to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, what John writes is that the Word, the Logos, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. Now that's an interesting word, dwelt, because it's the word in Greek that means tabernacle. (laughs) He literally came to tabernacle, so the presence of God could come, rather than being in a fixed place, he could actually move around. He was mobile. He was able to go places and interact with people and get involved in their lives. But here's the thing. Um, Like the earthly tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacle has a little issue. You see, sacrifice is still required. For us to be in the presence of God, it still requires a sacrifice. What Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 says is this, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it, to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. For the soul to have a covering, for us to be able to be in the presence of God and not have to suffer judgment, there has to be a covering. We're not righteous enough to stand there on our own. And so what we find is uh, it requires a sacrifice. And then we get to Jesus, the better sacrifice. The one who doesn't just cover uh, annually or daily temporarily, but instead covered, provided atonement for all of eternity. His sacrifice is so much better because it is a lasting sacrifice, an eternal sacrifice. So that leads us to chapter 10, where we see Jesus portrayed as a better sacrifice. I'll begin in verse 1, and we'll only go to verse 25 today. So for those of you uh, rearranging your lunch plans, when you see 39 verses, 
Have no fear. We will not be here for more than a couple hours. Verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never take with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For verse 2, Then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But, verse 3, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And so here is the scene that is being set. That for these Hebrew worshipers, as they made their way to the tabernacle, they would take with them an animal, a lamb, a ram, a sheep, a goat. They would take the animal with them in order to sacrifice the animal to offer it to the priests for the sins of themselves as well as their family. And as they carried the animal, and they would carry it, by the way, because a, a sacrifice had to be without blemish. They wouldn't want it to slip or stumble or fall. As they carry this animal and they uh, give it to the priest, what takes place is then the priest brings the animal up and in the most graphic of fashion, uh, slits the animal's throat, and the blood pours out. And that's, that's uh, uh, disturbing, right? It kind of bothers us. And we wonder why. Well, it's supposed to create an emotional reaction. It's supposed to be disturbing, uh, because sin is disturbing. Sin is deadly. Uh, the wages of sin is death. And so for the person who's offered up the sacrifice, they would have to watch that innocent animal lose its life. And why? Because of my sin. I did that. I, I caused that. And so the issue with the Old Testament law, the issue with the sacrificial system is that they would always walk away with the feeling like, I did that. I caused someone else or something else to suffer. And here's the next worst part. I'm going to have to do it again. I'm going to have to come right back here again and do the same thing because I know deep down I'm a sinner. And that this was only a, a kofar in the Hebrew, a temporary covering. It didn't uh, uh, remove sin for all of eternity. It simply covered it uh, so that the next year, the next day, the next month, they would have to bring the next offering back. Now, all that to say, when you get to Luke chapter 22, and we just read through this as we looked at communion last week. Here's Jesus. And what does he say? He says on that evening, do this in remembrance of me. As he talks about, as he makes reference to the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood, the giving of his life for those who did not deserve it, didn't earn it in any way, and yet he willingly gave of himself, he says, do this and remember me. For all those that offered those temporary sacrifices, they would walk away remembering their sin. But what Jesus says is, I want you to remember your Savior. I don't want you to remember your sin any longer. I want you to remember your Savior. And the, the danger zone for us is that we have this tendency to want to set up little sacrificial systems. Right? We, we don't think about idols and having little idols in our home. But what we have is a danger of setting up all these little ways that we can atone to God that we can make up for our wrongs, that we can somehow make things right. If I just set enough things up, if I just pray enough, if I get on my knees and really mean it, if I have tears, if I spend so much time in the Word, and all these things, by the way, are good. They're not bad. The problem is, 
they're not a way to atone for our sins because they'll never make us enough. There'll never be enough of a feeling where I can feel like I've somehow done enough. But that's not the point of communion. That's not the point of Jesus' sacrifice because his point was to actually make us enough. And that the, the desire he has as he communes with us is to stop thinking about what we can do and what we can give to him and realize what he's already done for us. And it changes our mindset when we get to that point. Instead of saying, oh, what a sinner I am, we say, oh, what a savior he is. Oh, how much he can atone for my sins and my issues. And so, uh, here is Jesus giving his life on our behalf. Now, for some of you, you may wonder, okay, all that in the Old Testament, all that blood, that's awful. Why wouldn't God just uh, give of himself right off the bat? Like, why not just do that right off the bat instead of all these animals having to lose their life and be sacrificed? Well, here's the thing. Um, God knows us really, really well. And what he knows is that we have this desire to try to figure it out on our own. Right? We're like that little toddler. I can do it by myself. I don't need any help. And so God says, all right, you want to do it by yourself. I'm going to give you a way that you can atone, that you can make this relationship right. I'll give you a few commands. Actually, a 613 or what's included in the Old Testament. And here's the thing. I'll make it even easier for you. God says, I'll boil it down, Exodus 20, to the top 10 list. If you can keep the top 10, just get close. But the reality is, oh, we can't. We can't even get the top 10 list. And so over and over again, oh, we would fail the test with the law. But then comes liberty. By his grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, we are now saved through Jesus. After all these years and centuries of proving that we couldn't do it, he now shows up to do the thing for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. Now we continue in verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Verse 8, previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you do not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. And so what we see is a reference directly to Psalm chapter 40, verses 6 through 8. This is a Psalm of David. And what I love about this is David uh, being guided by the Holy Spirit records what I think is a conversation between uh, God the Father and the Son. They're having this discussion amongst themselves. Maybe as we come out of that Christmas season, this even took place on Christmas Eve. Who knows? That, that God the Father was having this discussion with his son, and, he, and the son says, Sacrifice and offering you didn't desire, but a body you've prepared for me. You weren't excited about the sacrifice and the offering because here's the thing, it was never about that. It was always about the heart change. The real point of all this was to have a change of heart, but no religion, no outside-in process could ever change the heart. And all of Scripture, by the way, points to this. All of Scripture points to it being all about Jesus. So if you ever uh, have anybody directing you anywhere else other than the cross or other than Christ, I want to tell you they're not teaching out of the book. Because to summarize the entirety of the book, it's about uh, one man 
and about two events. His first coming and his second coming. It, it all essentially boils down to that. That's what the scripture says. Jesus says you search and search the scriptures hoping that in them you'll find life. But the entirety of the book, it's all about me. It, it all points to him and his ability to do what sacrificial systems couldn't do and that is change us from the inside out. It, it's not about the sacrifice and it's not about works. It's always been about the heart. Now verse 9, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And he takes away the first, speaking of the uh, covenants, that he may establish the second. And so the mission of Jesus is literally in his name. I've shared this with you before, but his name in Hebrew is Yeshua. It means Jehovah is salvation. His, his whole mission was right there wrapped up in his name. There's power in his name because it's all about salvation. And yet, notice with me how he accomplished his mission. He didn't accomplish it by force, by slamming his fist down, saying, they're going to believe in me. But instead, he accomplished it through obedience. Obedience to the will of the Father is how his faith played out. Luke chapter 22 verse 42. In this scene, this is Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He's getting ready to be wrongfully accused, arrested, uh, beaten, and then murdered. And yet here he is in this spot knowing all these things are going to take place. Knowing it's going to go very, very badly for him in order to save us. But what does he say? He says, uh, if there's any way for this cup to pass, Dad, please let it. And yet, not my will be done, but thy will be done. Thy will be done. And so his faith played out through obedience. And the same is true for you and I. We can proclaim all the faith that we want. We can have all the talks we want. We can proselytize at the county market. We can say amens and our fathers all we want. But actual faith plays out in a life through obedience. How obedient are we? And it's not a forced obedience either, by the way. It's a get-to, an inside-out process. The law tried to force obedience. Try to force obedience on your kids. Let me know how well that goes. It's got to be a change of heart where they want to do things. It's a, it's a get-to process. Last week I shared with you my testimony I shared struggles that I have had. I talked about addiction and all those kind of things. But here's the thing. Um, I'm not in a spot where I cannot ever do any of those things that I thought were so much fun ever again. That I cannot. Scripture doesn't say you must never do that again. The difference is I, I get to not. When I think about things that I, I maybe uh, one time took so much joy in, it is now so much more joyful to get to not do that. It is my pleasure. It's now like, hey, woohoo, I get to not be shackled to that. I get to not struggle in that arena, that area in my life. It's a privilege. So where the, where the law would always say, um, if you do this, you will live. What liberty says, if you live this, you'll do it. If you live through me, uh, you will do. It will be a natural uh, outcropping of accepting his liberty. Now, all this is done in, here in verse 10, that we will have been sanctified. 
It's a sanctification, a setting apart process. Sanctification is a scary word. It just means to be set apart. But here's the thing. It's his blood that sanctifies us, not our works. It's his work that he did perfectly on the cross that allows us to have this kind of access. And so I'm now justified by grace through the work of Jesus. And then it's faith that is the display, the outcropping of my belief. Justification means it's just as if I had never done it. So I am justified. I am being sanctified. Sanctification is a process that I believe happens until we draw our last breath, until the day that we will be glorified. So I am justified. I am being sanctified, but I soon, someday soon will be glorified. Now, that leading us to verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So here are the priests, back to that sacrificial system again, and they are working it. I mean, every day they're working over and over again, sacrificing over and over again. It's always the same. They're always working. And don't you sometimes feel like that? If you have kids at all, if you're like me, uh, all my references go back to uh, kids' movies somehow. I think about the lady from Monsters, Inc., when she's watching Mike Wazowski. Always watching, Wazowski. Always watching. And that's how it feels, right? Always working. Always working. Trying to keep up with it. Over and over again. I'm always trying to work my way to heaven. And the reality is, it's exhausting. It's exhausting because my temporary coverings could never be enough to put away my sin for all of eternity. All I can do is cover it up. All I can do on my best day is take my mess and just simply cover it up. And this is what he's saying about the priestly system. But verse 12, this man, capital M, after he offered one sacrifice uh, for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus offered a sacrifice, a better sacrifice, and now notice his position. It is one where he is seated, no longer standing and working. Realize when we go through all of the utensils and all the things in the tabernacle, you're going to notice something missing. Uh, There is no chair. There was no seat in the tabernacle. There was no seat in the Holy of Holies because they were always on their feet having to work. And yet here's Jesus the better tabernacle, the better sacrifice, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Not because he's tired, not because he's like, oh man, that salvation really took it out of me. I had to clean up that mess. What a bunch of work. No, he is seated because as he said himself in John chapter 19, verse 30, as he drew his last breath on the cross to tell us die, it is finished, paid in full. The work was completed. It was done. And he's not somehow waiting on me to finally arrive so that he can finish the work. He's not going, boy, I hope he gets it together so I can finish all this work I've got to do. No. The work is already done. And this is such a struggle for us, especially growing up here in the Midwest where we've got this pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. Right? Where it's, you got to keep going, got to persevere. You can do it. You can make your own way. Because here's what Paul says to the Galatians who had a similar kind of work ethic. Galatians chapter 3. 
what Paul says in the first verse is, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect in the flesh? What Paul says is, why are you being so foolish? All this, Jesus gave you his Spirit, not because you did such a good job working, simply because he loved you so much. And now you're trying to finish this work in your flesh. This is the problem. That we are called to receive the Spirit and then work through the Spirit, knowing that the bottom line is, is that I am complete through Him because of Him, and now I get to rest in Him. Seated at the right hand of the Father in Christ, that's my position for all of eternity in Him. So there's, there's no more work for me to do to complete that. Now everything I get to do in this life is because of what He's already done. Verse 13, as we continue... From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Jesus has positionally been seated at the right hand of the Father. And as a result, he has made all his enemies his footstool. They are all right under his feet. I think about that ottoman there we've got on the couch. And just put your feet on that thing. You're like, yeah, take that, enemies. Right? That's... That's Christ Jesus positionally. Now practically what we know is God is outside of time and, and Jesus has already won the victory. You can go to the last page, I promise you. He wins. He is there positionally. What we know is practically uh, we're still here on earth. And, and what Paul says is the prince of the power of the air, he still has been allowed by God to, to mess with the earth. He messes with people practically, but it doesn't change the victory. What changes is our mindset. When I remember that I am seated in Christ, in the third heaven with him, there's nothing that Satan can do here in the first heaven to mess with me. The problem is when I reduce myself down onto his playing field, and now I'm down on this level, he messes with me all day long. And so it's a reminder to say we are actually victorious. We've been seated at the right hand of the Father because of his sacrifice. Now, so often it looks like we're not winning, right? It looks like we're losing. We're losing ground. But what Paul would say concerning the cross, which, by the way, uh, Satan thought was a big victory. If you think about this from Genesis chapter 3, for the remainder of the text, uh, Satan was trying to kill the seed of Abraham. He was doing everything he could, pulling out all the stops to kill the Messiah. And it finally... We arrive at that fateful day on Passover in Jerusalem where he had him cornered. He had him beat. He was wiped out. And what Paul says in, 2 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6, We speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age nor of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages of our glory which, verse 8, none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You realize that if Satan had known, if he had understood that his plans were completely foiled, he would have never gone through with the crucifixion. Because as Jesus drew his last breath, 
and the veil was torn, what he proceeded to do was go down into Hades and lay an absolute hiney whooping on the enemy for all of eternity. He took the keys to hell and death. He preached to the captives. They were able to come up into heaven with him. And for all of eternity, we are now freed. If Satan had any idea what was really taking place behind the scenes, he would have never allowed it to take place. But that's the wisdom of this world, right? That oftentimes for us, the wisdom of the world says, you're beat, you're down and out, the church has no power, you Christians have no authority, and yet what Scripture says over and over again is the same thing that Joseph said to his brothers when everything looked awful. He said, what you intended for evil God intends for good. What the world intends to use to drive us to the ground, God is going to take those things, those situations, and he's going to bring them to a beautiful story, a testimony, in fact, a story that preaches all about him and his goodness because the reality is the victory has already been had. God is in the restoration, the the rebuilding, the sanctification business. So as the enemy wants to seek and to kill and to destroy. What God wants to do is restore, rebuild, and sanctify. That's what he's always up to in our lives. Now continuing in verse 15. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saying, says the Lord, I will put my law into their hearts And in their minds I will write them. And then he adds, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember no more. Verse 18. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. So the old covenant, it dealt all with uh, sin, but only temporarily. The best the old covenant could do was to deal temporarily with sin. But the new covenant, it deals with sins for all of eternity. But it does something even better. Notice with me in verse 17. He adds something. Their sins and their lawless deeds. That's directly out of Jeremiah 31. So what that means is it deals not just with our sin, but also with our transgressions. Now, what's the difference? Well, sin, as some of you may know, is actually a term that means to miss the mark. It's an archery term. So you can imagine uh, our sin... If you looked at it this way, uh, I've decided to spice up the worship set just a little bit. I mean, yes, we do simple, but we need to attract some more people. So in order to spice up worship, uh, Jake is going to begin to play the guitar with Michaela beside him, holding an apple on top of his head. And I, because I have studied uh, from the YouTube all of one hour and practiced one day my archery skills, I'm going to stand at the back of the sanctuary, I'm going to draw back my bow, and I'm going to go right through the middle of the apple. I mean, I'm an expert, after all. You can find everything on the internet. So as I draw back the bow and Jake strums on his guitar and I let it fly, it heads towards him, only it misses the mark. And it goes uh, right in his forehead. Now, we've got a couple problems. Uh, For one, we're down a worship leader. Uh, For two, it's going to take Michaela a while to find another guitar player uh, and a husband. But other than that, uh, I've got some legal battles on my hands. But here's the thing. Uh, I didn't mean to. Like I, I genuinely wanted... To, to do something good, and I drew back my bow with the best of intentions to hit the mark right spot on through that apple and drive that into the back wall. But I missed the mark. You see, this is, this is sin. Many times, this is a spot where we, we didn't intend to do bad, and yet things went bad anyway. And so that is what sin looks like. 
Now, a lawless deed, or what the Old Testament calls a transgression, is different. That's where if you had the exact same scene set up, and I was back at the back of the sanctuary, I drew back the bow, and I'm like, you know what? I just don't feel like hitting the mark today. Uh, today is just not a good day for me. Besides, I'm tired of following these two up. They're so good. Make me look bad. Like, we come for the worship. The Bible teaching is neat. So I'm just going to fix this problem right now with my bow and arrow. I let that thing fly, boom, right through the forehead. Now here's the thing. Um, Jake is still, uh, he's still dead. Michaela still needs a guitar player. Uh, but I've got way different legal battles. But what really changed in the scenario was my heart, right? I don't know about you, um, but there's some days where I mean to do really well. I mean to do well, and yet I still mess it up completely. And there are other days where I just really don't give a rip. <laughs> I just, like today, I just do not uh, have it. I don't feel it. Here's what Hebrews is telling us is, Jesus is here to take care of the days where we tried to do our best. But he is such a better sacrifice that he can also take care of those days where we did not have it. We did not even have the gumption to try to make it go. It's what makes this such a better covenant. And the other beautiful part is it didn't remove it just for a few minutes or even for a day or a year. But Jesus' sacrifice took care of all these issues, sins, transgressions, for all of eternity. Now, verse 19 Therefore, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. As His flesh tore, so did the veil. What does that mean? The veil in the temple. That was that curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the tabernacle. That was the place where only one man was able to go one time a year, the high priest on Yom Kippur, to offer atonement for the sin of the people. The veil tore. And what was behind the veil there in the temple but uh, the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant, you might remember from a few weeks ago, was the, the rod of Aaron, a symbol of God's authority in his life. What was also in there was the jar of uh, manna, as God provided bread from heaven, the children of Israel looked at it and said, what is it? And so they called it manna, which means, what is it? God said, it's bread from heaven. Dummy, go ahead and eat. He didn't say dummy. But he said, it's bread from heaven. Eat it. And they were like, what is it? And, and, and then they grumbled about it. The, the symbol of God's provision, God's very provision they complained about. They questioned Aaron's authority and rejected God's authority in their life. And then lastly were the tablets of Moses, the very law of God, who before he even brought them down off Mount Sinai, they'd already violated them. They'd already messed the thing up. And so in every conceivable way, rejecting his authority, growling about his provision, and then completely violating his law, what these things spelled out inside the Ark of Covenant was a complete and epic failure. They were a reminder of their failure that they had to be able to relink with God. But do you know um, the ark wasn't open because it had a lid over the top which is called the mercy seat. That's actually where the priest would drip the blood on. It was the propitiation. His mercy is what he provided. 
You see the point. God completely covered up their failures with mercy. This is why when Jesus was talking to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, as they would stand on the street corner, excuse me, and they would pray and they would say how holy they were and make it look like they had it all going on, what Jesus says as he tells this little story, Matthew chapter 9, uh, verse 13, I'll go there so I don't misquote it. I'll start in verse 12. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. In verse 13, he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. As this, as this uh, commandment has been given, he says, look, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I'm not looking for you to be uh, super sacrificial. I'm looking for you to actually be merciful. And I don't know about you, but lots of days, I would way rather be sacrificial than merciful. Because mercy requires me to do something. Mercy requires me to get involved. And frankly, uh, lots of times, I would rather get my checkbook out. I'd rather just write the check. Here's a sacrifice. Look how good I am, Lord. But what Jesus did instead was he gave me uh, not what I deserve, but instead gave me what I didn't deserve. He gave me mercy. Mercy is what I need. Mercy means compassion in action. When he gave of himself, he was giving, he was getting himself dirty, uh, giving us compassion right there in action, right there in that spot. Now, verse 21, as we continue. And having a high priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, as we read that verse, uh, note with me what kind of heart we are to come to the Lord with. It, it's not mentioned a pure heart or a clean heart. I think that's important to point out because lots of times we get it in our mind that we can only approach God if I'm of the purest of hearts. And I don't know about you, but I oftentimes don't have a clue what's in my heart. I think I do. I think, well, I've got a really good heart about this. And I find out later, my motives and intentions were all jacked up. I didn't have a pure heart about that at all. Or, or we have the other side where it's, you know what, I've got to clean it up. I mean, before I can can even enter into church. I, I talk to people about church and, and I love to interact with contractors. They're some of my favorite people. And yet, uh, more often than not, what they'll tell me is, I could never set foot in a church because the whole building might fall down. Like, well, I feel like structurally we're in a better spot than that. But that's how it feels. Or they'll say, well, I'd like to come if I just get a few things cleaned up. If I could just clean it up a little bit, I could, I could make my way into church. But here's the thing. Um, God isn't looking for a pure heart, and he's not looking for a clean heart. Notice with me, he's looking for a true heart, is what verse 22 says. He's looking for us to just be honest. He wants us, and I got my stories a little mixed up earlier, from Luke chapter 18, verse 13, when the man was being truly honest with himself, he wasn't praying righteous prayers. Instead, the tax collector and the sinner, he just stood over in the corner with his head down and he beat his chest and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm a sinner. 
And what Jesus would, would say, I'll go to Luke chapter 18 and read it since I already got my stories mixed up. Now I'll, now I'll quote it exactly. Luke chapter 18, verse 13. This is what Jesus says. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What Jesus is really looking for is us to be humble. Most of the time for me, uh, being humble only comes at the hands of humiliation. I wish I could learn some other way than to have to be humiliated, but uh, so far in my life it hasn't exactly worked out. Maybe you guys have done better than me, but, but he's looking for us to be humble to come to him with a true heart, to be honest with our situation and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm tore up from the floor up. I don't have this thing figured out at all. Would you please minister to me, a sinner? And as we lay that at the foot of the Calvary, then he can go to work. Then the purity and the cleanliness, the washing of the water, the word begins to take place. He will transition you from the inside out as we are just simply honest. Father, have merciful, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The cry here for the Lord from the Lord is to hold fast because he's faithful. Not because I have so great a faith, not because my faith is so large, but because he's faithful. I can hang on Literally just hang on by a thread because I know I serve a faithful God. That he has time and time again taken care of my needs. And as Jesus prays over his crew in John chapter 17, this is up in the upper room, uh, sometimes uh, called the, the upper room discourse, is what he, he, we're in here in John 17 verse 12. What he says as he's praying over his crew is while I was with them, in the world I kept them in your name. Those who you gave me I kept, and none of them I lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. See, Jesus was all about taking care of those that were his. What he's praying to the Father is, Lord, I kept them all, except the one who walked away. The one who intentionally, willfully just walked off, that didn't want to have anything more uh, to do with me. I kept them all. All by his strength and his faithfulness. Even those that struggled, he held on. And what I want to point out with that as it relates to Judas just really quickly, because it sounds like Jesus was harsh towards him, is Matthew chapter 26 verse 50. As Judas betrays Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he comes up to him to give him the kiss that would betray him. Look at Jesus' reaction in verse 50. And he said to him, speaking to Judas, Friend, why have you come? That verse has always stuck with me. Um, it's humbled me because I know how I would have reacted if I was betrayed like that. If I had been wrongly accused and betrayed, I would not have looked someone in the eye and said, Friend, why have you come? And what I believe is Jesus was offering to Judas an opportunity to repent. He was giving him, even to the very end, an opportunity to change his course for all of eternity. Friend, why have you come? He would later go on to take his own life, unfortunately. 
but not because Jesus didn't give him every opportunity. And so uh, be encouraged by that. Now, lastly, as we wrap up for this morning, verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. And so, as we conclude, the, the cry here from the writer to Hebrews through the Holy Spirit is, don't forsake the assembly of ourselves together. You understand there's a reason that God selects certain words. Uh, he calls you all an assembly, not a gathering. So, what's the difference, you might ask? It seems like semantics. Well, it's a very big difference, and so I'll, I'll take you to the best example I know, and that is with my children and with their Legos. Have you noticed with the kids, when they get the Legos out, they just string them out all over the place? All over the dining room table, there's Legos. It's like uh, Legos just threw up on the table. And there they are, all out there together. And I'll grab, like, we got dinner coming? Clean up the Legos! Let's go! And what they do is what I call um, gathering. They take the arm and they do the big Lego sweep across the table, like that, and they put them right into the bucket. And there they go. I have gathered the Legos. No rhyme, no reason. Uh, but then also what happens is from time to time, a stray. One will uh, fall out. will make its way onto the floor. And where typically the strays are found, at least in my house, um, are around 2 o'clock in the morning when I'm trying to use the restroom, I find them with the bottom of my foot. So if you've ever been in a spot like that as a parent, you understand just what a Lego that feels like it's been sharpened by a little person all night long into the bottom of your foot. Quickly, uh, you will become uh, the cussing Christian. Or if you've cleaned it up, you sound more like Yosemite Sam. That racking, racking, smacking, as you're hopping around the floor trying to keep what little Jesus you got at 2 a.m. together. Um, you see, that's the issue with gathering, right? But Legos were meant to be assembled. If I tell the kids, hey, I want you to go assemble this Lego set, what do they do? They take very careful time and order with diligence to put each piece into place to create something bigger. Something much better than just a single individual piece. Now, understand, uh, we are an assembly, not a gathering. That each of you have an individual piece to play. Not all the same part, not all the same piece. Some of you have three dots. Some of you are a corner piece. Some of you have got four dots, so good job. But, but here's the thing. We are called to assemble together. And as the writer is writing this to the Hebrews, remember the spot they're in, they're being heavily persecuted. Family, friends, workplace, people are putting pressure on them because they have chosen Jesus in place of all their tradition. And so they're thinking about walking away, just leaving the church altogether. And what he says is, don't forsake what you've got going on. Because here's what the church is for. It's to stir up love among one another and to provide verse 25 uh, exhortation to exhort each other that's just strong encouragement that's where someone comes alongside you and says hey you can keep going you can do this I see a lot uh, in you and so exhortation is what the church is here for now for us in 2023 now um, I would have told you this is very difficult for us to understand because these Hebrews 
had been persecuted. They were not being allowed to gather, or maybe they had to gather underground. And so it was very difficult uh, for them to gather. But for us, we have had tremendous freedom. We can gather at our own leisure. Um, but you see, we do have some frame of reference now. That for the longest time in this country, we had no idea what it was like when our gatherings were taken away until March of 2020. Where I'm not going to get on a political tirade because I'm not trying to make a point politically, but what you can't argue are the facts. And that is because of a global pandemic, we were told we cannot gather. We cannot assemble, I should say. <laughs> we cannot assemble. And so, uh, again, not to make light of something that made people very sick and was very deadly, but there was something far bigger that was actually at play, and that was our assemblies were disrupted. And so you, can't, you cannot deny the facts. I looked this up this week. Everything on the internet is true. Uh, but I did look at Pew Research, um, and, and what, what I read was, uh, here's some interesting statistics, is that during that time, as houses of worship were told they cannot meet, they cannot assemble, uh, anxiety, depression, suicide, and thoughts of suicide rose 30%. Truly pandemic levels of people taking their life, considering to take their life, being isolated in all sorts of ways, and form and fashion. And now, as we are coming towards the, the back hill, the downhill side of this thing, what we see is um, people are not coming back to church. They're not assembling anymore. In fact, this chart that I put up here on the screen is from Barna, and what it shows is, you probably can't read the letters up there, is that in a nation that was once a, con a Christian nation, where houses of worship were full Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, and Wednesdays, uh, seven out of ten people do not attend church regularly. And by the way, regularly isn't like what I grew up with, which was three times a week. It's one to two times a month. The people aren't even gathering, aren't even assembling, excuse me, that many times a month. Seventy percent of people are not assembling. And here's the thing about an assembly uh, when you're not here, we miss you. And that's not to, to make you feel bad if you got something going on. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying this to help you to understand how valuable you are. That, that the assembly needs all the pieces to look like what God intended for it to look like. And as God adds pieces to the assembly, He's got something in mind. There may be someone that you needed to talk to that had a shared relationship or experience, somehow you, you have this connection that is, is missing when we do not assemble together. It's so very vital. But here's the thing. Um, on top of just missing uh, as an assembly, here's the other thing that I have noticed through church, is that some of you have been told uh, you do not belong in a gathering. You don't belong here in this assembly. You don't have a peace or a place that you have been rejected or hurt. I want to encourage you that that is a lie from the pit of hell. You absolutely have a place. There is a body that needs you as a part of the assembly. I would love it if it was this one. And yet if it's not, I want to encourage you Find the place where you assemble and you fit. Where it makes sense. Where God can do something and make something far greater than the individual piece, but can make something that is truly fantastic 
out of it. And at the same time, as that happens, you will begin to encourage one another and exhort one another and stir one another up for love and good works. And as we close today, notice in verse 25, he says, as you do this, you're going to see the day approaching. That's a capital D day. No matter where you stand scripturally with, the, with Jesus coming back in the end, uh, here's what you cannot deny. Uh, we are one day closer than we were yesterday. <laughs> we are one day closer to his return than we were yesterday. And so as we have uh, friends and family and people we love so much that we want to know Christ, uh, it should create a little bit of urgency in us. We, we have this feeling like I'm running out of time to have that conversation. Even though it may make me feel uncomfortable, thankfully I have an assembly that encourages me, but I'm willing to have that conversation or to step into that spot or even pray with someone when they need prayer because the day is fast approaching. And while that idea might create a little bit of urgency, what it can also do is create a tremendous amount of peace. Because if you're in the middle of a battle, physically, emotionally, spiritually, I don't know about you, but there are some days where I'm excited about the day of Jesus coming back. I'm like, Lord, come quick. Like, I'm tired. I don't know if I got it in me to do it another day. And so I am encouraged with the ideas we stir one another up that the day is fast approaching. And so this, this concept, what this really does is it stirs us up so that we do not grow weary. What Paul would write in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9 is, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So Father God, we thank you and we praise you for exhortation. We thank you, Lord, for this assembly. I try to get gathering out of my vocabulary, Lord, altogether, but Lord, I thank you for this group that you have assembled. So many people from all different experiences and walks of life and in former gatherings and, and all the things that they have had go on in their own individual ways and yet you have assembled them at this time for a purpose. Don't always get to know what that purpose is, Lord, and yet you have assembled them here. And so thank you, Father, for healing that has taken place. Thank you, Father, for belonging and a sense of uh, assembling and, and, and value have been added in. Lord, help us to be a group that loves one another to the point where we can say uh, hard things or we can stir each other up, but we can also encourage because we know the day is approaching, Lord. Help us to have a boldness, a confidence to know that you are with us and that we are seated in you at the right hand of the Father. Lord, I thank you so much for what you're up to. Please bless this week, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.